Hello and welcome to HiViz, the Cause Chambers Westgarth Construction Podcast. My name is Margot Tate and I'm the Business Development Manager for the National Construction and Property Teams. Early contractor involvement or ECI contracting is becoming increasingly popular as a model for engaging with the market when procuring major projects. I'm joined today by Andrew McCormack, a partner in the Cause Brisbane Construction Team and Lawson Katiza, Associate Director at Savills, to discuss some of the key issues that should be considered when using an ECI process. Lawson, I'll turn to you first. What is ECI contracting and what are the key benefits of ECI for both the project sponsor and delivery contractor? Thanks, Margot. Perhaps we can go back and look at the traditional procurement model for construction where the principal will engage a design team and subsequently they'll tender out the full design and get a contractor to build it. What this normally does is the principal shifts the majority of the project risk onto the building team and unsurprisingly the building team will price the risk and into the contract contract sum. In a competitive environment, the contractor will sometimes wear some of the risk but in doing so, they may um, absorb the risk in the areas that they feel that they can control some of the risk. Depending on the form of contract, the contractor may have opportunities to claw back some of this risk allocation, but where they are not able to, you find that adversarial behaviours tend to creep up in the construction process. One way to manage this is early contractor involvement, or ECI, which attempts to optimise risk management, risk allocation, price and and control for the principal. So what ECI does is it allows the contractor to work with the design team from an early stage and to assist in managing cost and buildability issues. By so doing, the builder better understands how the project is going to be delivered. They understand the design rationale that was used um, to achieve that design and therefore they're able to build it more competently, more quicker, cheaply and ultimately more efficiently. Is ECI a one-size-fits-all proposition? Look, I think the short answer to that, Margo, is no. Um, There's a key difference between whether ECI is competitive or non-competitive. They will produce very different types of documents and processes. Uh, Non-competitive means you're only dealing with one contractor. And the key issue around that process is how long and how wide is the exclusive mandate that you give to the uh, contractor during the the ECI phase. If you have what's called competitive ECI, as the name suggests, there's more than one person involved in the process. So you might have two or even three contractors engaging in the first part of the process. What's key there, because it's not exclusive, there are two, two or three bidders, is to deal with the probity issues and confidentiality issues between the competing bids. Um, The other thing that's probably different between various ECI models and agreements are the types of deliverable that each project requires, and that will always be different from project to project, regardless of whether you're dealing with competitive or non-competitive ECI models. Are there different types of ECI for different projects? Well, Margaret, different property sectors may employ ECI in different forms. This comes down to the cost-risk complexity of the project, whether they are long lead time items for critical equipment, the allocation of design responsibility and a few other things that you know, that are project specific. Typically an ECI will be a predecessor to a DNC contract or managing con- contract arrangement. However, what we're trying to, starting to see now is it actually emerges in different types of hybrids for and even in fully designed lump sum contracts as well. 
in those cases, the principal may appoint a contractor through a tender process at the, at the outset, or they may appoint someone directly based on relationship or specific expertise that the ECI contractor may have. The appointment may be two-phased, with the early stage being a fixed uh, fee for uh, the ECI involvement, and that may be tendered out to various contractors. What may follow that is an advanced ECI stage or D DNC contract and that may be tendered out again depending on how much value the principal thinks that they have achieved from that first process. In practice, ECIs take the form of ongoing or selective design workshops. Um, sometimes it's a toing and froing exercise between the various design teams uh, and this tends to happen where we have geographically disparate locations or just by nature of the design that it does not necessarily require the um, face-to-face -face engagement. So Lawson, when should a project start to consider using ECIs as, um, as a procurement strategy? Consideration of when to use ECI should really be incorporated into the early stages of a project, really at the project brief stage or when the procurement strategy is being formulated. Um, by doing that, you know exactly when you need to employ your ECI contractor, how they need to be engaged and how they work with the rest of the design team. Notwithstanding that, the actual implementation of an ECI is ideally best suited to sort of the schematic um, and the design development phases because at this stage the concept has been developed. The contractor comes in there knowing roughly what the boundaries are, what they're trying to achieve and there's a brief that they can work to um, and, and start working to optimise. Right, thanks Lawson. Andrew, what does an ECI agreement look like? Is it always a detailed and complex document or can it be simplified? The short answer, I think, is that it depends. Uh, always a good lawyer's answer. Um, an ECI agreement or an ECI contract can be something as short as a simple letter form agreement or it could be a large document with many clauses and multiple schedules. It's really driven by the needs of the project, um, what needs to be delivered, what uh, commitments need to be made at this stage, and the needs and perhaps more appropriately the, the type of client who's using the ECI phase. Because if the client is a government client, then the likelihood is they will be uh, requiring a greater degree of probity and uh, more onerous probity obligations than might be required in a private sector uh, transaction. Uh, However, a common theme in any ECI agreement is it's got to set out the process for engagements. It's got to set out how the client's team and the contractor's team are going to sit down together, workshop uh, risks with each other, um, work out ways to mitigate and provision for and, and ultimately allocate uh, risks. And uh, as Lawson alluded to previously, typically that's done through a series of risk workshops and the development of a risk register. I see. So what are the key legal issues that need to be considered in any ECI agreement? Uh, an ECI agreement is still ultimately a contract. So um, the key legal issues are not that different from that which you get in any type of contract. But because it's at the front end of a transaction and it's dealing with an agreement that may or may not, as, as Lawson mentioned before, go into a second phase when the project's actually delivered, um, the key things I would expect to see in there are, well, what are the deliverables that the contractor actually has to provide? What sort of reports, what sort of specifications, what sort of pricing? Um, how long is this ECI process going to go on for? Um, and 
is there an exclusive mandate? If it's a one contractor, that's going to be key uh, for them having that exclusivity. And how can it be brought to an end early? Is there a termination for convenience right for the principal, for the client? Dealing with bid costs is also going to be very important. Typically, um, an ECI agreement will allow the contractor to recover certain of its bid costs, which um, then becomes an issue of, well, how do I verify that those costs were properly incurred? Is there any cap on the recovery that I can make? And indeed, are there any preconditions to my entitlement to claim those bid costs? So, for example, if I don't submit the key deliverables I'm required to do as a contractor, I don't actually get paid. And that's not uh, an atypical arrangement. I think the the final point to touch on probably is confidentiality. Um, The whole point of this exercise is to encourage a free exchange of ideas and information between the contractor and the client. Um, If you have multiple contractors bidding, so we've got two or three involved, they will be keen to ensure that their confidential information is not shared with the other bidders, particularly if they're ultimately not successful. Um, In addition to that, you'll have the client and the contractor exchanging perhaps sensitive information with each other, and they will want to make sure that there's, there's strict confidentiality rules upon what can be done with that information and who it can be shared with. Lawson, what are the practical challenges in administering an ECI process and then following through into full project delivery? It's important at the outset to ensure that the governance frameworks are in place um, for what the ECI's contractor's role will be. So what is the extent of it? Do they inherit a design team from uh, the principal or does the principal's design team lead? Those sort of issues. Um, It's also important that there's a clear alignment between the principal's design team and the contractor's design team, just to ensure that the principal's design, design team don't feel that, they're being, um, that their design integrity is being undermined by having a, a buildability expert in the room. By doing that, you create confidence between the various parties and that helps to establish a good rapport between all stakeholders throughout um, the ECI process. One way to respond to your question, Margot, is to pose a few other questions that the principal and the project manager should ask at the outset. For example, deliverables. What are the actual deliverables, as Andrew mentioned earlier, um, for the ECI contractor? Is it value management? Is it buildability? Is it price? Or is it design smarts? How much influence should the contractor have on the design and how hands-on should they be with the design inputs? because that ends up informing how they interact with the rest of the design team. What is the cost benefit of the ECI to the project? And is the ECI cost beneficial to the overall outcome of the project itself? These are business case issues that they need to consider at the outset. Should the ECI contractor be retained for subsequent stages? And if so, should their fee be determined at the outset or be progressively agreed? The last thing you want is to have a lot of variations seeping through, which again starts to undermine the confidence of the team. How does the principal ensure that they are still getting market value at the end of the ECI process? So what we're saying here is should they tender out the subsequent ECI stage or indeed the building stage? What form of contract will the ECI outputs go into? And this is critical because it influences how much um, work the design team does. So do they develop a full design themselves or are they just doing a design specification that will ultimately be passed on or novated to um, a DNC contract by the contractor. And these are just some of the challenges that, that, and questions that I encountered in, in, in developing or implementing the ECI process. 
and they are project specific so what we're saying is you can't apply these to every project you just need to create um, or understand the specifics of the project so that you can customize um, the delivery to suit the challenges right okay thank you and andrew i just wanted to pick on something um i'll just pick up on something that you mentioned earlier how might an eci agreement deal with intellectual property rights in documents prepared during the eci process uh, the, the the vexed or sometimes vexed question of intellectual property rights. So it rather depends on what the project is for um, as to how important ownership um, of intellectual property rights is. Uh, the less complex a project or where it's using um, well-known technology, then a license is usually sufficient. Sometimes a client will want to own the IP created in, in the uh, ECI phase and uh, as Lawson mentioned before, uh, that might be a problem for a, a contractor in a competitive scenario where he loses the bid, um, but yet sees his IP walk out of the door. So setting the rules of the game around use of IP rights is really important to do in your ECI contract. Working out what rights does the client have to use pre-existing IP of the, um, of the bidding contractor, which may be necessary uh, in order to uh, perform the, the project working out who indeed does own the any new IP that's created in the ECI process. Is that owned jointly so that both the client and the contractor are able to use it moving forward? Is it owned by the client? Is it retained by the contractor? And they give a license to the client to use it. Um, if it is any IP is licensed, the two key issues are really what is the scope of that license? Typically, it will be just for the project at hand and not a broader license. Uh, for obvious commercial reasons. Uh, and then and in a temporal sense, if the contractor is not the selected contractor, often he will say, well, that, that IP license is now at an end. I'm picking up my bat and ball and I'm going home. So we have to see uh, what the project throws up as to how important IP is. And there's a number of ways that one can deal with it. Great, thank you. Some fantastic points in there, gentlemen. Thank you very much both for your time today and thank you to our listeners for listening. This podcast is for reference purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances.